It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's the week beginning Monday the 19th of February from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. I was so angry because Putin killed again the most prominent politician and a hope of new Russia. The Nasser Medical Complex in southern Gaza in Khan Yunus is no longer functioning. 200 patients, at least 20 of which are critical, are still trapped inside the complex. That's the real deal. That's the real deal. If Kanye West and Michael Jordan had a baby, they could still not sell enough sneakers to try and overcome the debt that Donald Trump has amassed. And the winner of the BAFTA for Best Actor goes to... Killian Murphy. To help work out what to lead the news at a time when there's so many really depressing stories vying to lead the news, I'm joined by my colleagues... Chloe Hadjimatheo, who's a reporter here, focuses particularly on the Middle East and world affairs, and our political editor, Kat Nealon. Hello, Kat. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. The noise of politics continues to get (laughs) noisier. And I'm delighted to say we're joined by Graham Barrow, the host of the Dark Money Files podcast, who's in danger of being mobbed by fans in the tortoise newsroom for his dogged daily work exposing the modern mess that is company's house. Why... Do you think that people like us are fascinated by the work you do on Companies House? I think it's because it's so niche. You need an absolute geek like me to spend hours and hours and hours every week ferreting away in the bowels of Companies House to discover connections that are otherwise really difficult to find and, you know, show them to the light of day and other people look and go, really? (laughs) Um, I'm going to invite everyone just to kick off by leading with long story short what's their story that should lead the news chloe what's yours mine is navalny and navalnaya yes she is extraordinary isn't she cat mine is labor's immediate problem yeah okay (laughs) there are a few there i think cat (laughs) but uh, i'm so excited to hear what you've got to say and graham yours uh, mine is the the creation of a vast network of fake restaurants over the last six weeks. All right, Chloe, can we start with you with Navalny? Yeah. Um, I, I, I've got to confess a prejudice when we come to this news meeting. I found it hard to think of anything else over the weekend. And I can't tell you how shattering the news was on Friday. It's a curious thing. I can't remember a story recently where an individual has died and you felt so hopeless and despairing. 
And then over the course of the weekend, I've realized actually my feelings have got in the way of what I actually know and understand. And I don't actually know very much. So, so I scribbled down a bunch of questions. Okay. So firstly, who was he? So Navalny was a Russian politician um, who started in politics in uh, the 2000s, originally with opposition parties. He started out as quite a nationalist and was criticised for sort of stoking xenophobic feeling and nationalist feeling. But over time, his position has changed and his focus has really gone to anti-corruption. And he has got under the skin of the Kremlin, really, by uh, shouting about how much corruption there is, how much the Kremlin and Putin's cronies have been enriching themselves at the expense of ordinary Russians. And who's she? Yulia Navalnaya. She is his wife. Uh, They met in Turkey when they were in their early 20s and fell in love almost immediately, apparently. Um, She was an economist, but quite quickly put her career on hold uh, to help raise their family. And also, although she sort of downplayed her role in Navalny's political rise, she has very much been the driving force behind him. She has been his uh, PR person, his campaign manager. She's very, very influential. And he's often said, I couldn't have done what I've done without her. All the way through, she has very much supported his campaign and the risks that he's taken because she thinks very much like him, which is that there is something bigger at stake than just one man's life. And their lives have really gone on hold, I have to say. They have to have escorts and bodyguards and all sorts of stuff. The whole family has been massively affected. The knowing sacrifice of all this is just unbearable. I wonder whether or not we are completely out of step with Russian thinking on this. So one of the questions I've got is, what's the view of Russians towards Navalny? I mean, over the weekend, I read they were like knocking on 400 pro- people who had been arrested. Know, been arrested. And I couldn't work out whether that was a large number or in fact, a small one. So I think outward support is very, very small. It's difficult to know, because people in Russia aren't very free to speak their minds. Um, you know, in sort of independent polls, they're still looking at over 50% support for Putin. It's very hard to judge of the other percentage, how many of them would vote for a Navalny were he free in elections. But something's happened, hasn't it, Chloe? Because I was in Russia in 2012, just ahead of the elections then. And at that time, Navalny was considered to be a much more powerful political force. The white protests were something to be reckoned with. That's the strange thing about his death, and many people assume murder, last week, is that he wasn't as potent a force politically in Russia. Is that right? I think he wasn't. It's it's worth bearing in mind when he returned to Russia after being poisoned, just months after he recovered from this horrific um, poisoning attack, Novichok attack, he... um, He published a YouTube video, a documentary called Putin's Palace, which sort of took apart Putin's wealth and focused on this massive house he'd built. This was the one on the Black Sea. This is the one on the Black Sea. That video has been viewed by millions and millions of people. And polls suggest that an enormous percentage of the Russian public have either watched it or are aware of it. That hurt Putin hugely. The other thing that you have to remember about Alexei Navalny is his personality. He had an incredible and almost 
unassailable sense of humour. It didn't matter what happened to him, he managed to crack a joke about it. He was put in Russia's harshest prison. I mean, this is, for all intents and purposes, a gulag in one of the coldest, most harsh regions on earth. And he still managed to crack a joke just the day before he died. He um, was joking with the judge and the judge was laughing at him on a video conference. So he, he, Putin couldn't touch him in a way. It didn't matter what he did to him. Beyond killing him, there was no way that Putin could affect him. So I've got a question, Kat, for you on the politics of this and the international politics of this. So David Cameron, mm. the foreign secretary of the UK, has said there must be some consequence. consequence. What could they possibly be for Putin? I don't think there's going to be any consequences for, for, for Putin, certainly not from the UK perspective. I mean, I think they're talking about sort of sort of strengthening sanctions, but so far that doesn't seem to have made much, if any, impact on Russia. In fact, I think the economy's doing rather well. It's getting better. They've, they've very extensive sanctions. It's hard to know how they could extend them anymore, really. Yeah, and the other, I mean, the, the other possibility, I've seen some people suggest that the UK expel the ambassador, Kellen. But again, I'm not sure what that would really achieve. People Um, expel ambassadors all the time. Exactly. And and of course, you know, when we had the Salisbury poisoning, um, what Theresa May did was she sort of gathered together a kind of coalition of of leaders from around the world and, and they all sort of systematically expelled lots of diplomats who were perhaps not you know, actual diplomats, more spies, um, who had been living in various countries. Uh, But, you know, the sort of relationship between the West and Russia is now at such a kind of low ebb that simply getting rid of a handful of people from your country is not really going to cut it. Graham, how does it make you feel? Because when we talk about Companies House, I suspect Mm. we're going to talk about this sense that wrongdoing happens, you howl at the moon about it and nothing changes. And we had David Miliband, the former UK Foreign Secretary on, and who's coined this phrase, the age of impunity. And I think a lot of people feel there's impunity in the UK. You can do things and get away with it. But when they look globally, they really see it. I mean, we still happily accept company registrations from people out of Russia. I don't understand why we'd do that. I can't imagine we would allow, you know, if we go back to the Second World War, we wouldn't allow Germans to keep incorporating companies in the UK during the Second World War. And it feels like we are at war in some respects with Russia. And I don't understand why we still freely allow Russians access to UK corporate entities and therefore presumably the global banking system with impunity. It makes no sense. So so the the, the last question on the Navalny, before we get deeper into the company's house story, Graham, that I want to ask, but Chloe and Graham, it... it, uh, uh, is addressed to both of you. I, I found myself thinking over the weekend, how do you answer the basic question, what happened? How do you get to find out how he died? Because over time, when Boris Nemtsov was killed, when Litvinenko was killed, when Politskaya was killed, when uh, Prigozhin was killed, at the time, they were all mysteries and we all said we'd never know. And actually, Skripal I'd forgotten, you know, Salisbury murders. Actually, people do find out. It takes time, but you can find out. It's already trickling out, I have to tell you. So so if you want to know the latest on this, there's um, a website or an organisation called gulag.net. And they say that they have found that two days before Navalny's death, FSB officers 
arrived at the prison colony, disconnected and dismantled listening devices and hidden cameras. And they have a source that says that the expert who conducted the initial autopsy on Navalny was verbally instructed to describe bruises on his body as having occurred after his death. And um, there are journalists at an organisation which describes itself as an independent um, called MediaZona, who say they have traffic cam footage showing the traffic over the only bridge connecting the prison colony with the morgue at the nearby town. Um, And they found a federal penitentiary convoy travelling at midnight after his death, presumably carrying his body to the morgue, which now says does not have his body. The morgue claims not to have his body. His mother's been running around Russia looking for his body. Part of this is, is there a cover-up going on? Why can we not see his body? Why is it taking so long for his family to have access to him? And so slowly, slowly, things are starting to trickle out. And I have no doubt that more and more will come out and we'll learn more. The thing with Russia is it within its corruption, it's very leaky. It's very easy for Bellingcat to buy things like flight manifests or access camera footage and stuff like that. So I think it's possible to find out. I think that there's something extremely sad, this suspicion that we've got, which is it's all pointless. There's just, it's not just that there's not truth anymore. There's not much point in heroism either. A very good friend of mine on New Year's Eve, we went for a walk and as we were coming back, he'd he'd posted uh, on uh, social media a response to something that Alexei Navalny had said. And what he said was that his dearest wish in 2024 was that he would be free. And what an exceptionally brave man he was. And you could feel his admiration for someone doing something so obviously courageous. And then when he dies of quote-unquote sudden death syndrome, which itself feels like a kind of dark joke on all of us, you can't help just feeling sad that it all feels pointless and all of the responses feel performative and you think to yourself, well, maybe the arc of history doesn't tend toward justice. You know, you really do lose Putin belief. Putin does seem to be winning. So, Graham, for those people who don't understand exactly how Companies House works, start with that and then will you start with what you've discovered okay. and what that says? Companies House, my, my description of Companies House is it's the equivalent of a library for companies. So much the same way as you go to the library and, and it, it has books on its shelves, but the library itself doesn't act as a as a censor of those books. It puts the books on the shelves and you make your mind up. Companies House does the same thing for companies. So you pay a small fee, which is £12 to register online. You create your company. You say where your company is going to be placed, who's going to run it. And they take that information. And as long as you've filled each box in, doesn't matter what you put in the boxes, they will place it on the register, which is the equivalent to putting the book on the shelf. What they won't do is check any of that information. So it's in completely unfiltered. So I can, as somebody else has done, register the company and say, my name is Santa Claus. I live at the North Pole and my occupation is philanthropist and that is how it will appear on company's house what right. i don't understand is why bother publishing a, a document that says i'm the director of a company yeah it's registered here w- what's the use of company's house oh, in wow. any fraud wow. or criminal oh, activity come back in three hours yeah. <laughs> um, so there's there's some quite obvious ones like it, it, there are there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, dodgy crypto sites around the world which publish their UK incorporation documents to assure you that we're a legitimate company. So that's a really easy one. You just 
that's 12 quid. You get a PDF document, an you know, electronic document, put it on your website, and I'm now a legitimate company. That's quite nice. Rather more insidious is that it's probably not well understood that in, in many, many respects it's, respects, it's easier to open a bank account in the name of a company than it is in the name of an individual. You or I open a bank account, we need to produce our driving licenses and our utility bills and all the rest of it. A lot of company bank accounts are open through what's called EID, electronic identification. So the directors will be verified through one of the big credit reference agencies. Now, if you happen to have the names and all the personal details of other people who you put on the company's uh, accounts and and their registration documents, you can get through that process. I mean, I I, I know because I've dealt with some of the outcomes of that um, pretty straightforwardly. Now you get a bank account, they may well offer you an overdraft or loans. Well, if none of your information is on that company details, you collect that money and disappear. And and just to be clear about that, I have got documentation of a company that was opened in the same day opened a bank account in the same day took out the eight pound overdraft that went with it and disappeared and that was one of hundreds of companies in that same network so you know multiply that by a factor of 10 or 100 and it becomes a very very lucrative and what part does companies house play in money laundering and criminal activity it's massive it's really really hard to downplay that i don't think i've ever been involved in any story regarding global money laundering or or national money laundering that doesn't involve corporate entities that are registered at companies house because it's so much easier to get access to the banking system through it. But I imagine if you're filing uh, company accounts from Moscow yeah. or from Montenegro yeah. or from any other part of the world, it's yeah. almost impossible to pursue. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there were about 30,000 companies registered last year out of mainland China. Yeah, what are you going to do about that? So I'm intrigued by what investigative journalism looks like. And maybe we're trying to co-opt you here, Graham, I and mean, you wouldn't consider yourself an investigative journalist. <laughs> I would. But like, what do you do? Do you just get up every morning and just say, what's shown up on Companies House today? What's the system? Um, I think I probably need to give you, if, if you'll allow me a couple of minutes, a bit of an insight into the brain of Graham Barrow. It's, <laughs> it's, I, I've throughout my life, so as I, you know, as I say, I describe myself as a 70-year-old granddad sitting in front of a PC, which is exactly what I am. Um, but I've always been... Um, subject to obsessions, uh, not always healthy ones. I spent two years obsessed over prime numbers. Go figure that one. Uh, when I was a kid, I became obsessed with bus tickets. I collected bus tickets. So that sort of nerdy autist who 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 does stuff that other people think, oh. Um, but in the last, well, since 2017, 2016, I have been obsessed by Companies House. So yes, the answer is I do get up and because Companies House is completely free to access and I started searching Companies House. They then helped me by launching an advanced search function. And you've got to imagine in my household, I was running around like an idiot going, wow, you know, <laughs> advanced search. This is just fantastic, um, which, which made it a bit easier. And then I met, well, I say met, I met in the modern sense online, um, a, a chap called Robbie who, is, uh, who can write Python the way most of us write English. Just extraordinary. So he started writing code that could do what I did, only very, very much quicker and, and much more accurately. And we ended up forming a company that, that does exactly that. So, so I have, in my head, I have algorithms which he can now turn into proper algorithms. And I cannot tell you how effective that has been, depressingly, because it's just revealed the morass of criminality that's currently taking place in the UK. And w when you talked at the beginning, Graham, you mentioned this 
restaurant story. Yes. So, funnily enough, a friend of mine who runs a restaurant down the road from the tortoise newsroom yeah. messaged me to say, my restaurant's just cropped up on company's house with a slight misspelling. Yeah. And then I discovered that there's 70-odd others, and then it turns out there, there were another 40 others. And then it turns out, as I think you and Barney McIntyre, my colleague Absolutely. here, you know, put your heads together and discovered, did you say 800? 800. So... Just explain that story and what on earth is going on. I still don't understand the point of registering all these restaurant oh, well. names. So, long story short, um, big middle of December, the first one cropped up, which was a fairly obscure com- uh, restaurant in Hemel Hempstead. But then within the space of two or three, someone registered the Ritz restaurant of number 150 of Piccadilly, um, and it was somebody who lived in the Midlands, and they were 24, and that seemed quite unreasonable. And then... Uh, from the 1st of January onwards, it just exploded. We had at one point 50 or 60 a day being registered. And they had two traits. Either they were describing the restaurant in a way that the restaurant wasn't directly named. but So, so for example, the Ritz Restaurant London Limited, although it's been there since you know 1906, so it's a bit late in the day. Um, <laughs> or Ottolenghi which is clearly a very well-known, but with two I's on the end of it, or, yes. or Dinner by Heston Blumenthal with two L's on the end of it. Now, most people may not know that Ottolenghi's only got one I and Blumenthal's only got one L, so it's quite easy to pass those off as being, you know, looking legitimate. Franco Manca in London Bridge had two A's at the end of it. So, And to what purpose? A number. The, the obvious one being that if you can get those um, restaurants banked, and the banks make available, as they often do, automatic overdrafts. You just clear the overdraft out and, and disappear. But also, you can move other money. So, you know, let's, let's say we've got county lines drugs dealers who, who have a lot of cash and they want to, to move it. Restaurants still take a lot of cash. So if you open a bank account in the name of what looks like a restaurant and pay significant amounts of cash through, they'll just assume that's the takings from the restaurant. So. And since, since we flagged that up, I saw the BBC's now covered it yep. too. So people are aware of it. What happens then? Nothing? No. No. So it's one of the responses, well, haven't Companies House got rid of all these companies? No, they have no, they can't. They, they actually legally cannot just strike them off. One of the other uses you can put a UK company to is they can sponsor visas for incoming migrant workers. So um, it, it wouldn't be beyond the bounds of reason to create a significant network of companies that would allow migrant workers to come in apparently on a, on a, on a working visa. And has anyone done the work on that? Has anyone mapped no. companies' house registrations to visa applications? No. I mean, the second most common uh, overseas jurisdiction for registering companies is Romania, which is, which is disproportionate to the population and the diaspora of Romanians in the UK. And, and I'm talking about 30,000 companies a year. I mean, it is huge. And there's, there is an underlying connection there, which is quite uh, clear to me, but there's very little empirical evidence to validate it. Just for listeners of the News Meeting podcast, the one thing that these microphones are not picking up is Chloe Hadjimatheo's face, <laughs> as you said that, which was the look of the person who goes, well, there's, there's a story. There's a story. <laughs> well, there, there is a story. I have to say that this is a huge relief for me. I'm not very financially literate, yeah. but I'm always doing investigations where I'm ending up on Companies House trying to understand something, and I'm always hitting brick walls going, none of this makes any sense. Yeah. I'm so relieved that it actually doesn't make sense, and it's just not my <laughs> ignorance. I have, I have relied on Graham's expertise on more than one occasion to get me out of a hole, because you do feel like that. You know, you're going to go down a wormhole, and you're like, how does this make sense? The 
the money is just transferring around or there yeah and and you actually it makes you feel stupid and then you go to an expert and you're like oh no i'm not stupid it's sort of meant to be like this it's funny it makes you feel it makes me feel snowed i feel as though we're being deliberately obscured from the information we need graham on that definitive if depressing note let's take a break and i'm going to come to cat's story and the immediate problems facing labor I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Cat. So my pitch is Labour's immediate problem. And the reason that I am referring to the word immediate there is because of the looming second time round vote on a ceasefire that the SNP is bringing this week. And the question is really, I think, hinges on the use of the word immediate. So the motion, I won't read all of it, but SNP says that this House calls for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and Israel and then notes the death toll, notes the number of people uh, who are sheltering in Rafa, um, condemns military assault, um, and it also further calls for the immediate release of all hostages taken by Hamas and an end to the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Um, Now, this is very similar to the motion that was brought in November which uh, was kind of a really big test, perhaps the first big test that Labour has had to undergo uh, during Keir Starmer's leadership. It resulted in uh, about 10 shadow ministers resigning their position, including Jess Phillips, who we had on this show the week after, uh, so that they could vote with the SNP against Labour. And it is this issue of immediate ceasefire. Now, over the weekend, Scottish Labour held its conference and Scottish Labour's leader, Anna Sawa, also called for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, Keir Starmer uh, did not. He said that the fighting between Israel and Hamas must stop now. And now I think we can all say we're sort of dancing on the head of a pin here, but I think that is quite a big difference. And I think that Keir Starmer has reiterated some of the points that he has been making previously, which is that when he talks about fighting stopping, it is conditional on the release of the hostages. Uh, but that motion does not make it a condition. The yes. motion that I just read out, it it says that it further calls for the immediate release of the hostages, but it doesn't say in order for the ceasefire to happen, this is what we would like to see. And Kat, can I pause? Why does this matter? Because it clearly is not going to make a difference yes. to what's happening on the ground in Israel yes, yes, and yes. Gaza. Well, I mean, that is the point. It, it, it obviously has no bearing on uh, what is happening in the Middle East. And uh, Labour has been saying that actually it's it's unhelpful because we should be trying to speak as one country on this. And we should try to be sort of having a, a united uh, position, which is to encourage both sides to get around and have a negotiated settlement. But isn't Cameron's position, now Foreign Secretary, 
Cameron's position quite close to this. He seemed to be saying the same thing, which is, let's get to a ceasefire, let's move towards a two-state solution. But that's Labour's position as well. Two-state solution is, is Labour's position. Ceasefire is Labour's position, but, but it is... It's the immediate. It's, it's the immediate and it's the caveat around the release of hostages and the recognition that if you're saying an immediate ceasefire, actually what that means is Israel downs tools. And and it's then kind of at the whim of Hamas as to whether the ceasefire kind of is is maintained. But or isn't not. there a massive difference between now and November, which is in effect the US, the UK, much of the West is verbal in its criticism of the conduct of the government of Israel, mm-hmm. even while they support the existence of the state of Israel, even while they support Israel's right to defend itself, they are more and more saying the same thing, which is this has to stop. Yes. Yes, I think there's definitely been an evolution in everyone's position uh, over time, which was, I think, uh, initially such horror at the October 7th massacre that people felt that Israel had an absolute right to respond. But the response has become so protracted, so many people have died, and it is clear that um, a disproportionate number of the people that have died are women and children, um, that it is it is no longer, I think, plausible that uh, the Israeli government is given a sort of effectively a blank check to kind of continue. Chloe, what do you think? I think that's right. I think that public opinion has moved massively. We're, we're talking about unprecedented number of civilian casualties. It's a very different thing to essentially say Israel has the right to defend itself in November 2023 than it is at the end of February when it seems as though the 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 the, the cost, not just the cost in civilian lives and grief and sorrow in Gaza, but the cost to the long-term security of the state of Israel given global support, mm-hmm. you know, as you say, ebbing away. And, and with so risk high. of ex- escalation. And with no end in sight. That's mm. the other thing. There's no end plan here. There's no day after plan. Graham, what do you think? I'm irresistibly drawn to the same sort of conclusions that we had a conversation about Putin and Navalny, which is, I'm not sure Israel care at the moment. So, um, you know, it's 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 hard not to draw the conclusion that that the vote in the Scottish Parliament is much more about local politics than it is about any sort of desire. It is. It is very much about domestic politics. But it's it's and just because I realise I've not quite answered your question, James, in kind of terms of why it matters. Of course, it will have no bearing on what happens in Israel and, and Gaza, but it does have a bearing on what happens here. And the SNP knows that it successfully managed to kind of drive mm. a wedge between Labour MPs last depressing? time. And that's what it's trying to do again. And and yes, I, I personally, I, I, I look, politics is a sort of rough and tumble game. I am sort of uneasy with this because I do think, A, it's a very serious issue and you shouldn't be playing uh, sort of party politics with it. And B, when the motion was brought last time, there was a spike in um, sort of protests outside MPs' offices and death threats. And we've since had at least one MP stand down explicitly because of the death threats that came about, maybe not necessarily from the vote, but certainly from from the the sort of wider, uh, you know, kind of response to October the 7th. And I just... I. It feels um, it's sort of I can understand why the SNP is doing it because it plays well with their sort of base um, and Labour are the party that they are most concerned about. But it, it doesn't have any kind of bearing on reality beyond that. There was a good piece in the FT today about the dynamics within the Netanyahu government. Mm-hmm. And it made me 
think about the extent to which we feel and understand politics closer to home and it takes us a longer time to understand it further away because the point that it was making was Netanyahu's coalition essentially rests on, in particular, these two right-wing figures, Smotrich and Ben-Gavir. And, and people have long talked about what it is to have such right-wing figures in that coalition. And there, were, there was just one simple detail in this story that I had not been aware of previously, which was that both of those men live in the West Bank. That's where, they, that's where their homes are. And so their politics is very clear, which is... If you were to set up a two-state solution, right, which would then force us to move, we're going to pull the plug on your government, and you're then forced to go to the polls, Netanyahu, and you will lose. And the extent to which that politics then rebounds on all the politics we're talking about here. The ability to, to, to devoid those those contexts that you carry with you, and I'm as bad as anyone, is almost impossible. Yeah. So that's contextualizing responses is exactly the same as the West Bank. The only time I've ever been to Israel, I was in Tel Aviv, and I did a tour of Jaffa while I was there. Mm. And you don't realize that, that in Jaffa, they have mixed schools. They have they have the schools where they have Jews and yeah. Muslims go to school together. It is entirely possible to live together if you want to. However, if your power derives from being divisive, mm -hmm. then you will carry on making life divisive otherwise you lose your power and sadly and, and it's almost always men I'm sorry to say who have that addiction to power that will happily cost lives in order to maintain it. I'm going to try and pull this together I'd like to say that we've managed to surprise ourselves in that I started this conversation today thinking the only story I really wanted to talk about was Navalny and actually it was a reminder that there was much more going on. Um, Graham, I'm going to invite you first. The way this works is, if you weren't choosing the company's house story to lead the news, what story yeah. would you choose? I would choose Navalny, um, because I think it's a global story that matters to all of us. And if one man's life is going to be spent without repercussions, then any life can be spent without repercussions. Chloe? I think I would... I would go with Company's House. I find it really quite fascinating and I feel like it's a story that's got legs. There's going to be so much more as we've just motioned to each other to <laughs> dig out in that story. I find it fascinating and I think it's this confluence of of something very old like Company's House with online banking and there's so much of this that we still haven't got our heads around in the modern world that slips through the net and I, th I think it's a good story. Cat. Um, I'm personally very drawn to the company's house story and have worked on some company's house stories with Graham. Um, but I think for this week, it has to be Alexei Navalny because it feels like a very, very significant moment. And whenever we talk about conflict, we talk about the importance of, or I talk, personally talk about the importance of the individual in those stories. This is an individual story that gets to the heart of the conflict. I totally agree, Kat. Uh, you won't be surprised to hear that it's clear to me that you lead on Navalny. This would be one of those times, one of those weeks, where I would drive a coach and horses through the whole running order <laughs> and just make sure that you were doing Navalny, Navalny, Navalny. There, there needs to be moments where the news makes a call on what matters and heroism still matters. And that's why I'd lead on that. That said, I would probably, if we were playing strictly by the rules, follow with Company's House because it's one of those stories that the more you hear, the more intrigued you are, the more amazed you are. Uh, and the more... Anti-corruption. It, it has read across totally. with Navalny. 
Absolutely. And then the, the curious thing about the Scottish Labour story is as inclined as I am to be dismissive of it as a politics and process story, actually it's a principal story too and you can't get away from that. So uh, thank you. Kat, thank you, Chloe. Thank you, Graham, for coming in and bringing these stories. If you want to weigh in with views or thoughts on what should be leading the news or how you read our judgment of it, please do email us, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. And we're going to leave you with the voice of another hero, Yulia Navalnaya, who has just posted this message just four days after the death of her husband, Alexei Navalny. In my place. Another person should be here in my place, but that person was killed by Vladimir Putin. Somewhere in a prison beyond the Arctic Circle, Putin didn't only kill Alexei Navalny as a person, he wanted to kill our hope, our freedom, our future. We know exactly why Putin killed Alexei three days ago. We will tell you soon. But the most important thing we can do for Alexei and for ourselves is to go on fighting. Tortoise. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. <laughs>